Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and you're on the channel that loves atheists. And today we're going to be taking a look at a video um, by the apostate prophet, who is an ex-Muslim atheist, who is making a video about uh, why he doesn't believe in God. Now, he says that he uh, has wanted to make a video like this for a long time. Uh, the take I got from it was that he just didn't know how to compress it into a manageable time. What exactly were the most important issues? And he says that uh, if he listed out all the issues that he has with God, it would be a much longer video. Um, I'm going to respond to what he said in that video, and I want to make it clear, Apostate Prophet, if you see this, I don't mean anything unkind in any of this, and I'm not attacking you. Uh, I hope you view this as a friendly and charitable response. I'm attacking ideas, and ideas aren't persons, and uh, some of the worst things that have happened in the history of the world have happened because people were afraid to attack ideas. So um, I think he'll understand that, uh, doing what he does. And uh, in a certain sense, the apostate prophet has been helpful in the response toward Muslims because he was a Muslim, and so what he has to say about Islam is insightful in a very personal way. And so in that sense, he has been uh, helpful on channels like David Wood's channel and on his own channel in responding to Islam. And so uh, as far as that goes, we can appreciate some of the work that he does in that regard. But as for what he believes about God, um, I think we can make some comments. So we'll begin by looking at what the apostate prophet has to say about what he thinks about the question, does God exist? And maybe I'm close to what is called agnosticism or non-cognitivism, where the thought is that the question, does God exist, is rather irrelevant or a meaningless question because the word God itself does not carry any proper meaning, any defined meaning. It's rather an idea that emerged and was shaped over time by people in different ways. Okay, so first I need to clarify that he, as best I understand him, is a traditional atheist in the traditional understanding of the term, which means he is convinced that no god or gods exist. Now here he says, it's an irrelevant or meaningless question because it's not well defined. I don't know how you would think that the question of whether God exists is an irrelevant or meaningful or uh, meaningless question. It brings to mind for many of us who are aware of the uh, famous quote from C.S. Lewis that gets uh, tossed around quite a bit, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Well, for someone like the apostate prophet, perhaps he thinks it's meaningless um, because uh, it's of no importance because he believes that uh, God, he's convinced that God, at least a certain understanding of God, does not exist. Uh, but there are many things. The reason that he gives is because it's not clearly defined, and the understanding of God and what that means has been nuanced in various ways by different 
people groups and different cultures. Well, there are many things uh, about which our understanding has been nuanced, nuanced by different individuals living at different times and in different cultures that we don't reject. For example, the nature of light has been understood differently, but we still think that it's important to talk about light. Uh, the muscle that we call the heart, for example, has been given different meanings and understood differently at different times and different places. Or what we mean by the experience of love has been understood differently in different times and different places. But none of these things are things that we say because they're nuanced and, and because the understandings of them have emerged in different ways and, and we come to different conclusions about them, therefore they're irrelevant and meaningless. I just don't understand where that goes. Uh, and if it's not very well defined, well, then if he wishes to clarify which God are we talking about to the person standing in front of him, then he can give his opinion about that God. Now, to be as charitable as we possibly can, I'll give this caveat. He does go on to say in the fuller response, and by the way, if you think I'm taking anything out of context or understanding him wrongly, and I could be, that's why I've linked the video. I don't intend to take anyone out of context, but if that happens, the video is linked in the description. You can watch the whole thing. I encourage you to do so. Uh, the caveat that I'll add is he does go on to say that if we're talking about some force or something like that that's not well-defined, well, I, you know, whatever. But when we're talking about the Abrahamic God as understood by Jews, Christians, and Muslims, I think he says he's convinced that God does not exist. To be as charitable to him as possible, perhaps we can presume that what he means is he views the existence uh, or non-existence of that God to be meaningful, but outside of that, talking about God in a, in a less defined way is not meaningful. But even there, I don't see how that's true. If he merely means that it doesn't matter to him, I think that, that and I, I take that to be what he means, that's fine, I suppose, but I find it to be unwise and wrongheaded given how influential these ideas are on the history of the world, whether you think that they're true or not. But uh, so I, I don't know, but let's get in now to the, the actual objections that he has. Um, and we're going to start with his experience when he looked at a map of the world religions for the first time. But okay, let me come to the topic. Why I don't believe in God. I think one of the most problematic things for me when I was a Muslim was to look at a map of the distribution of religious groups and to think a little bit further about that. In fact, I'll do it right here. There are many maps which show the distribution of religious groups. Here is one of them. Some of these maps may divide Christian beliefs into separate religions, and some do the same with Islam. But I think it's totally sufficient to simply look at a map that colors the map by the major religions. When I look at this map, I see something that I could never unsee when I was a Muslim. And as someone who really loves maps, it always disturbed me when I came across a map of religions. What I see is that the religion that you believe in depends very much on the circumstances that you are brought into when you are born. If you are born in the middle of America, you are very likely to be born into Christianity. If you are born in Italy, you are even more likely to be a Christian. In Poland, even more. If you are born in Saudi Arabia, you are almost definitely a Muslim. If you are born in Pakistan or Egypt, you are again most likely a Muslim. And this only scratches the surface. I was born in Germany, which is predominantly Christian, although Germans don't really care that much about religion anymore. But since I was born into a Turkish Muslim immigrant family in Germany, I was born into Islam and was raised as a Muslim. Most people who, like in my case, are born into such Muslim families would live their lives as Muslims and die as Muslims. Most of them would never change their beliefs. I was just an exception. 
I had different interests, a different personality, maybe a combination of things that happened in my life, and I chose to abandon my beliefs and to change them. But most people don't do that. In modern times, religious interactions may have become much more common, but still, most people stay within the religions that they are born into. Only few people abandon their religion, and only a very tiny number of people, maybe a statistically insignificant number of people, convert to a different religion permanently. And this intrusive idea that I always got when I looked at this map is, mm. how could I possibly believe that my religion is the true one, the right one, the good one, when the conviction that my religion is the right one only depends on where I am born and in what time I am born? Okay, um, I'm sure he says some things about this distribution of religious belief that I think is a bit more of a challenge later on in the video. But um, as for what he's just said here, how could I think that I was right when that my beliefs were correct when uh, it, it seems to be so dependent on where I was born and all these sorts of things? Well, I agree with him that um, that his Islam was not correct. However, we can get to the right conclusion in the wrong way. And I know that that wasn't all that played into his doubts or his coming to question these things. So I'm not, I'm not saddling him with just this. But based on just this one criticism, this seems like a classic example of the genetic fallacy. And that's to come to, uh, to, to view something as likely false or false based on how the view arose. So in this case, I, I came to believe Islam was true just because of the family I was born into or the location or whatever else. Um, I may come to believe that the earth is more or less spherical because I read it in a comic book. And someone could say, but that's a terrible way to come to the conclusion that the earth is spherical. Don't you know there's all kinds of things in comic books that are false and not do not represent reality. And that may well be true. But even though I came to believe the earth was spherical because I read it in a comic book, I'm still right that the earth is spherical, and so we need to challenge the views based on their own merits. And that's going to be something that we come up to uh, for again and again in this response. So let me cast it this way. There are various views about the nature of climate change. And let's say that you were born into one family that completely denies climate change. One family over here believes or let's not I'd say that you were born into a family that denies climate change, but there's a family here that strongly believes and teaches their kids that there is no such thing as climate change as we understand climate change. Um, over here, there is one that believes in climate change, but they believe in global uh, cooling. This one over here believes that it's more or less global warming, and I could be using these terms wrongly. But And then there's one, uh, and, and you know, in the midst of all of these, one of the families is, uh, is the father is a scientist or the mother who's doing work in this area and accepts pretty well what most scientists believe about the nature of climate change. And let's say that's the family that you're born into. Well, um, you could look around and say, but there's a lot of people in different families that have different views about climate change. How could I ever think that the family that I'm born into is the one that has the right understanding about climate change? Well, that would be fallacious, right? What would you do in such a situation? Well, what you do in that situation is you look at the evidence, right? You'd say, okay, so I am predisposed to believe in this particular understanding of climate change. That um, I can't help. I do have biases toward that, and it's good that I'm aware of that. So I'm going to challenge those biases by looking at the evidence. And so you would look at the evidence for the various types of understandings of climate change or the lack of climate change, and you would come to a conclusion based on uh, what the evidence actually says and what most convinces you. That's the way you would overcome that. It doesn't mean that you don't have a strong bias. Of course that's there, and we're not saying that that's not there. But in your case, you actually seem to think that you've done that. 
you looked at the actual evidence and overcame your cultural bias. Now, you would say, and you did say, that you represent a small minority. The, the issue would be, how do you overcome this? By looking at the evidence. That, a lot of people don't do that, doesn't have anything to do with whether it can be done and should be done. So I think that's important. Again, what may immediately spring to his mind and others who have watched the video is, well, there's more to say about this religious distribution thing. And that comes with another criticism later on about why God would set it up this way. But on this particular position or issue right here, um, people can do that, and they should do that, and the way they would do it is the way they would do it with anything. Take climate change, for example, they would look at the evidence. Now, here's a further question. Um, doesn't this apply to atheism, too? I mean, if someone was born into a family that was more or less atheist, should they say, well, how could I ever conclude that, that I, I mean, the only reason I believe that, that atheism is true, and if you're the person that says, wait a minute, atheism is true, atheism is merely a lack of belief in God. He's saying that his atheism is more along the traditional lines of someone who's convinced that God does not exist. So how could I ever have any confidence that I'm right about that? Um, when I was temporally born, he did mention the time you're born in, I was temporally born in a time where there is a rise in atheism. And uh, I have access to information across the internet. It seems that maybe um, this is just the time I was born in, and, and perhaps there are cultural dispositions that allow for a belief like this. So in a situation like that, how could, how could you ever conclude? Well, I think you would say you conclude by checking it out and looking at the evidence. But of course, that wouldn't pair well with what you're saying here about religious worldviews. And so I think that that needs to be taken into account. Lastly, I, I've given this example before. If we had an Easter egg hunt, and there were, let's say, 100 eggs out there, and we were particularly malicious parents that want to disappoint children, and so we don't put uh, uh, any candy in any of the eggs at all, except for one egg. One egg really does have candy. And all the children are told to run out into the yard and, and, and stand next to an egg, but not pick it up. We've got 100 children, 100 eggs, okay? Um, one of the children is going to be standing next to an egg that actually has candy in it. But if he says, well, I happen to know that all but one of these eggs doesn't have candy. So how can I believe that the one I'm standing next to is the one that actually has the candy? Um, he may have reasons to suspect that and then look for evidence. But what he couldn't say is, since so many eggs are not going to have candy, then none of the eggs likely have candy. That wouldn't work at all. And in fact, one of the individuals is going to be standing next to an egg that does have candy. Um, and that reasoning would fall apart. So this is, these are, I think, some important things to say about this particular issue. Let's go on now to say, okay, what about looking for the evidence? There are apologists in all of these particular um, uh, worldviews. So what do we say about that? Instead of leaving my religion, I could have gone into Muslim apologetics, and I could have made many arguments that are very convincing in favor of Islam, arguments that I would have thought were very solid. Muslim arguments are very laughable to me right now, but to the average Muslim who wants to stay within Islam, Islam is quite convincing, and to them, their arguments are very solid, even if to me they look very ridiculous. Well, Christians also make very solid arguments for their religion, or so they believe. Protestants make solid arguments. Orthodox Christians make solid arguments. Catholics make solid arguments for their beliefs. Sunni Muslims make solid arguments. Shia Muslims make very convincing arguments as they believe. Hindus make solid arguments. Jews make solid arguments. As long as you want to justify your beliefs, you will find solid arguments. All of them believe that their own convictions are definitely 
very reliable, very solid. And they believe in that just as much as I did when I was still a Muslim and I believed in the defenses of my religion. Um, people that have the view that climate change does not exist have solid arguments. People that believe that it does exist have solid arguments. People that have particular view of climate change A have solid arguments and view B have solid arguments. How can we ever figure this thing out? As long as you want to have a particular view of climate change, you can find people with solid arguments. But we don't operate that way, do we? We assess the arguments. That's what we do. We take a look at what's being said, and we try to figure out which of these is most likely to be the case. Um, uh, and secondly, what are the arguments? Are you saying they're all equally valid? Because I've heard some terrible arguments for why one should believe in Christianity. I've heard some terrible arguments for why someone should believe in Islam or whatever else. But then there might be strong arguments too. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure that the apostate prophet is familiar with the classical theistic arguments like the uh, cosmological arguments, uh, uh, contingency arguments, ontological arguments, teleological arguments. What about the arguments for the resurrection? Uh, let's talk about the individual arguments. Just to say everybody has arguments is that is truly meaningless. That would be like saying about any particular thing that we believe. We can't really know. Everybody's got solid arguments. Well, it may be that not everyone has solid arguments, or not everyone has arguments that are as solid as everyone else. So we would have to take a look at those. And then, let's not exclude atheism as a, a particular issue here. Does atheism have solid arguments. Because we could turn this whole thing around and say, well, hey, yeah, if you want to be an atheist, okay, atheists have solid arguments. If you want to be a Christian, Christians have solid arguments. And we're left with this, uh, we're, we're only moved by our feelings or what we would like to be true rather than what actually is true. But you don't believe that apostate prophet. Something moved you to atheism. And if you want to say, no, 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 because atheism is just a lack of belief. I don't take that to be the position that the apostate prophet is putting forward. And so uh, what you throw this into the mix. I mean, this atheism is, um, even if atheism isn't a worldview, atheism as an ingredient in a worldview results in what we could call an atheistic worldview, a worldview that contains atheism. And that is not immune to this same sort of test. So if why is atheism the one that gets the special treatment? Why not, why not say no? Just like I have things that I've encountered, uh, reasons to believe that atheism is true, uh, there are reasons to believe Christianity or Islam or whatever is true. And so what we need to do is not just say, well, everybody's got solid arguments, so nobody's got solid arguments. Uh, why not take them each and go through them and make a decision based on, on those things? And I don't doubt that apostate prophet has looked at those things, but as far as a reason to doubt, I, the, the way this is put I don't really know how else to, to view it. All right, let's go on to the next thing, um, another reason why he doesn't believe. How could I, in a world where I don't know anything, and I learn all my life, and I realize over and over again that I don't know anything, that I am ignorant, that we are ignorant, that humans have been ignorant for so long, that we still don't know some very basic things about the seas around and under us, about the space that is above us or around us. How could I be sure that in this ignorant world, in this flawed world where we constantly make so many decisions that turn out to be complete failures, how could I be sure that I have the right answer and that I was, by coincidence, by a chance, by a blessing, born into the right one, the right answer? How could I possibly believe that? We still don't know how the brain really works. We're making progress. We've begun to figure it out quite recently and we're making a lot of progress. 
but we still don't properly understand much of the brain, which is us, which is our motherboard. What we understand so far from it is that we humans make many judgments and have made many judgments in history that are incredibly wrong, but we always think that we are onto something. And we rather want to feel safe and comfortable about our beliefs instead of inquiring further and admitting that we may be mistaken or that we may have been mistaken. Because why challenge and risk changing everything when we can just accept our assumptions and go with the flow without disturbing the system which works? Why bother looking for more answers when we can just live in comfort with whatever people believe in? Knowing this, how could I believe that my beliefs, which my culture adopted at some point, which I was gladly, happily born into, are the right beliefs? Okay, so um, <clears throat> there's a couple of things here. One is, he says, how could I be sure? Now, I'm not going to saddle him with this, but I wonder if he means that uh, how, could I, how could I be, when he says, how could I be sure, how could I be certain? How could I have, hold this position without doubt? Um, how could I have like a level of Cartesian certainty? Well, I don't know about these other religions, but I can tell you about Christianity. That's not what we try to offer. We try to offer that it's more likely the case that Christianity is true than not. Now, there are some Calvinist presuppositionalists who will take the position that you can have something approximating Cartesian certainty where it is impossible to doubt. But um, I, I, most of Christianity does not hold that position if, uh, if they thought deeply about it and understand what, what we mean by those things. Um, so if that's what you're looking for, that could be the problem right there, is we're not trying to give you Cartesian certainty. But we'll say that maybe that's not what he means, but it may be someone out there in the audience that feels that way. Um, that's putting the bar far too high. In fact, there's almost nothing, if anything, in our lives that we have that level of Cartesian certainty about. And so that's for the birds. It's not necessary. So how could I be sure? Well, if you're talking about that, then you can't be, but who needs it? That's not a big deal. What we want is you to be sure in the colloquial sense, like high, a high degree of confidence. Um, he, he throws up some of these journal articles and websites to show that as we've studied the brain, we've figured out we're wrong and it's easier to stay in our current beliefs. Well, as we've studied the brain, we figured that out. I don't think that's some new revelation. Surely he would agree that you could drop someone in at any moment in human history and ask them, like in any moment in human history, do you think that people can be wrong about things? Yes. Do you think people sometimes believe things for bad reasons? Yes. Um, do you think people sometimes think it's just easier to keep staying in uh, believing one thing rather than challenging that belief. Yes. I think people have known that throughout human history. That's not some big revelation. That's not something we need neuroscience to conclude. Now, maybe what he means is, as we've studied the brain, we've gotten more and more reason to believe that that's the case. But in any case, uh, we all agree about that. But that brings us to the next thing. He says, how could I have ever been sure about my beliefs if um, I know that our brains and our reasoning is so often so defective? Okay, but now you've moved out of well, you've moved out of I'm doubting because my my previous position because of culture or how I was raised and all those things. That's a piece of it. We've talked about that, and we'll talk about it again. But now you're saying because our thinking is just, is uh, defective, and we sometimes conclude wrong things, and sometimes it's easier to believe one thing than another. Well, that believing one thing or another is not just that we it's easier to believe what we've been believing. Sometimes it's easier to believe something new uh, because we have biases toward that belief. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened to you. I don't know your story. 
But the idea that our brains are defective and we can sometimes believe wrong things, that doesn't just apply to the things that you were raised. That should apply to whatever you conclude right now. If the thing is our brains are often wrong, about we, we often come to wrong conclusions because we're imperfect people, how do you know that you're right to have the positions you hold now? After all, this proves far too much. It doesn't just prove, if you're right, that we have, we have no, we, we, it seriously cast out on what you were raised to believe. It seriously cast out on what you're believing right now. So um, I think the more reasonable position would be to say, yeah, we can be wrong, and sometimes we do think it's easier to believe one thing than another, and yeah, sometimes it's easier to keep believing what we're currently believing. So we just recognize all of that, and we throw that into the mix, include it in, as a, an awareness of our bias, and move forward. And after all, that's what you think that you've done, um, so that can be done. But if it's such a crippling thing that our brains uh, lead us to false conclusions, then you have to be open to that for your atheism as well. All right, let's move on to the next thing, and that has to do with punishment. When your religious beliefs mostly depend on your environment and your conditions which you can do nothing for, does it then really make sense that God punishes or rewards people based on what they believe in when they die? If Islam is true and Allah is the one true God, then that means that the vast majority of those who are born into Christianity are doomed and will go to hell by default, because only few of them will become non-Christians and only a very tiny number of people will ever convert to Islam. If Christianity is true and you have to follow Jesus in order to be saved, then the average person born in Pakistan as a Muslim is by default doomed, because he strictly believes in the truth of Islam and will most likely not question their belief Ever. It means the vast majority of those people who are born into Islam, who are born as Muslims, are doomed to live an empty life and probably go to hell forever and never to be saved because of where and when they were born. I don't have to make big claims about how people experience religion. We know by experience that most people simply don't seek and don't inquire. Most people are loyal to the religion that they belong to. Okay, so uh, this is where the religious, uh, you know, uh, how the map is divided up religiously actually becomes a little bit more important because, hey, if you're born in this place, you're more likely to believe this thing. If you're born in that place, you're more likely to believe that thing. And so isn't it wrong for God to punish us based on whether we believe or not when we are set up kind of to believe the wrong thing uh, depending on where we're born? Uh, depending on which religion is true. Well, th there's a fundamental problem with this. Um, God does not punish people based on what they believe, not directly. That's, that's a secondary thing. He, punished them as, he punishes them based on their sin. In fact, that is the thing that you're being punished for, is, is, is sinful actions, the sins that we commit, that we all commit, okay? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the reason we need a Savior. The, the, what you believe and whether you accept and, and place your allegiance and, and your trust in Christ is, uh, for Christians, is the way to, uh, to, to, to escape the just penalty of your sin. But it's not that you're punished for not believing. You're punished for your sin. It's just that if you believe, there's a way uh, for you not to experience the ramifications that you would experience for that, because God is a just God, and He found a way, He supplied a way, He didn't, not like He looked for it, but He supplied a way that that just penalty could be met, uh, because you're deserving of an everlasting penalty, and uh, 
that everlasting penalty was met by an everlasting person, the, the God person in Jesus who died and paid that penalty. So need, justice needed to be done for your sin. If you believe that justice uh, can be, can be uh, is satisfied in Christ, but if you don't believe, it's not as though something unjust is being done to you because you're punished. That was the just penalty. In fact, even if he's... Uh, well, first of all, did you notice that he spoke in a way that seemed to imply eternal conscious suffering, that you will be eternal, eternally consciously suffering, whether that is in flames or whether that is um, suffering in, in a sense of uh, sorrow or, or it's not literal flames, but it's still eternal conscious suffering. This is to completely ignore annihilationism and conditional immortality. The idea that you that, that when, when you die, that um, as in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and following says that fear not him who can kill the body and after that has no more that he can do. Fear him who after he is killed has the power to cast you into hell. Fear him, um, body and soul. Fear, fear him who can who can destroy both body and soul. So conditional immortality believers affirm that you will die. When the Bible says that this is the second death, it will be death. It, it, so so this death is is eternal or everlasting in the sense that you will not be resurrected, but you'll just be dead. That's that's what they hold. It completely ignores that view, um, and so that needs to be taken into consideration. Even if he's right, all have sinned. And if God punishes them for sin, that's his prerogative. Like, let's say that these people were born in this place, and because of that, they're set up not to believe. It's not unjust for them to experience the ramifications of their sin, while other people may be more disposed toward belief and then have an opportunity to escape that. You might think that's unfair or uh, unequal, but what's fair is that all of us the, the just penalty is that we experience death for our sins. That we, that, because it's not it, because of this fundamental misunderstanding, you're not punished for believing the wrong thing. You're punished for sin. Okay, that's an important thing, and everyone is aware of immorality, if you want to call it that, or what we as Christians would call sin, which just to miss the mark, which all of us believe we can miss the mark, morally speaking, because of the moral code that is written on our hearts. That's the Christian perspective. So if you're doing an internal criticism of Christianity, you have to understand that we affirm that you have this moral code written on your heart. Now, you may not like that, but then you're just telling me what you think about theology. You don't like that, though we all justly deserve uh, death because of our sins, um, it's, you don't like it that some people might be more predisposed. However, I actually think there's more to say about that, and it has to do with how Christian theologians answer what is known as the fate of the unevangelized. So let's take a person that's born in Pakistan who, who doesn't have the same disposition toward Christianity because of their culture or their beliefs. There are several ways that Christians have answered that. None less than my father, uh, William Lane Craig, and Billy Graham have said God judges people based on the light of revelation that they had. So um, this is why Paul would say on this understanding in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 20, that the invisible things of God, His eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. He was talking there about idolaters, in fact, not even atheists, but it would be true for atheists too, that you can look around and you can see that there is a God from looking at the created world, the thing that has been made, so that if you don't believe, there's no excuse for not believing. And perhaps um, some individual who has not heard the Christian message and doesn't know the gospel, that God will judge them based on what they are capable of understanding. Um, that's a possibility. Another poss I don't accept that possibility uh, necessarily. Another possibility is that, um, that there will be, that, uh, that at the point of death, there's some possibility given. Jerry Walls offers that in his book, Heaven, from the early 2000s. 
Another possibility that I think is more likely is that for those that are open to the truth and seek the truth in some measure, that, uh, that, uh, that, there will, that, that God will provide more light. And there's a biblical example of this in the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, where this is a man who is open to the truth, and so God gives him more revelation through Peter such that he can believe. And actually, we have seen that, uh, according to the North American Mission Board, I'm sorry, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, when we have arrived in unreached people groups, people that, we are in, that are in what we call the 1040 window who have never heard the gospel, um, many times they will say they've just been praying uh, recently that God would reveal to them the truth. So they're open and, and then the answer comes. So there's a biblical precedent for that, and we seem to see something in, in reality. Um, it's not a surprise that there are many Muslims who, who have testified to Jesus appearing to them and telling them to go find a particular missionary or something like that to find out the answer. So if you're open to more light, then more light will be given. That's a possibility. Molinists, which that's a whole thing that would take a long time to get into, but simply put, many Molinists think that an answer to this question is that God has ensured that of all possible worlds, he actualized the world where the only people who never hear the gospel are the ones who would have rejected the gospel had they heard it. Um, you may not like that one, and that's not my particular answer, but these are all a spread of answers, and to just say that there isn't a good answer to this, I think is um, to ignore, and maybe you think they're all silly, but to ignore the work that has been done, the rich history, the sea of ink that has been spilled out on this issue. So I think those should be answered and would avoid even the, the, the issue of saying, hey, even if someone doesn't hear the gospel, we are still all culpable for our sins. You don't, you don't uh, die because it may be, you might consider it to be unjust, to punish someone based on not understanding and therefore not believing a particular thing. But it's not unjust to punish people for sin. And that's an important thing that I think should be brought out here. All right, well, what about experiences that people in different religions might have? To every Christian who will tell me that if you just ask God, and if you sincerely want it, then God will reveal himself to you, and that you feel this connection because they communicate with you, I have to tell you, as a religious Muslim, I thought the same thing, and I felt the same thing. I felt the same connection. I felt overwhelmed. It was right there. It was heavy. It was sweet. It was beautiful. Sometimes it even felt like it made me drunk because I felt so in love with it. And yet I have encountered so many Christians who have described basically the same thing in different words. I know some people will really try to tell me that what I experienced as a Muslim was actually the wrong thing. It was actually something different, and only the feeling that you feel as a Christian is the right thing, and that is guidance. Just as a Muslim will tell us that what Christians feel is actually misguidance, and that it is Satan touching them. Whereas what Muslims feel is of course right. And who is the judge here who will point at the right one and the wrong one? You? Me? Other humans who are so mistaken by default? who are so wrong about so many things in the world again and again, just like me. Isn't it so obvious that it is all so subjective and so biased that it's all the same? Okay, so the first thing is who decides? Who get, like They're having these experiences. This other religion is having these experiences. Who gets to decide which ones are the legitimate experiences? Well, we, this presumes that you make that decision just based on the fact that you have experienced something like that. Well, no. What you do is you look at the evidence, just like you would do with climate change or anything else. Look at the evidence and see which one seems to have the best explanation. Because I agree with you that people from various religions can have uh, 
what seem like spiritual experiences or what are spiritual experiences. And I think there's actually a couple of things that we could say about that that also play on to what he says. Um, he says, well, Christians are going to say that, that, it's, that it's a deception or it's not the legitimate experience, and Muslims are going to say it's the touch of Satan, which, by the way, sounds really nasty. I don't want anything to do with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, first of all, it could be demonic. One of these religions could be giving you something demonic. And I think that, as a Christian, the way you could discover that is, again, looking at the evidence to find out which religion seems to be the one that is most likely to be true. Another way is to uh, seek God directly and ask Him to reveal it to you. And um, I believe that, that uh, the gospel can, can is the power of God unto salvation and that the Holy Spirit can guide you there. But if you don't like that answer, because that sounds like I'm presuming Christianity in order to demonstrate Christianity, well, then just, if nothing else, you can look at the evidence and you can see how it shakes out. Um, it also might not be demonic in every situation. It could be that um, what you're talking about worshipful experiences. I have a whole video on this where we look at what a neuroscientist has to say, and I do think um, it is true that our brains experience cer certain things happen in our brain when we worship. Um, especially when we have like a rhythmic, like when you're in a congregation singing or in some religions when you're making a motion back and forth, there is something that happens with the blood flow in your brain that, that can uh, exhibit some of these uh, ethereal sort of uh, feelings that um, give you a sort of euphoria that, that you kind of seem to maybe be hinting at there. And what I would say to that is, yeah, we are wired for worship. I think that we are wired for worship. And even aside from these spiritual things that I think can play into that, simply naturalistically, it could be that a part of the design, just like I believe God designed us and intended for us to develop with a hand that could grab, a mouth that could eat and breathe and talk, and um, olfactory sensors that we can smell things and taste things. Just like he had a design in all those things, there could be a design in our brain that we are set up to worship. It's why that you could worship false things and, and access that while you're worshiping something false. The worship of false gods is seen as a real thing in, in the Bible and in Christian theology, and uh, it could be a desirable thing. And it also explains why people seem to experience some of these same effects in concerts or in, when they're doing drugs or when they're experiencing some sort of a sexual encounter, is that what you are accessing is you are activating that worship. Uh, capacity that is a part of the design of our brain. All of these things could be actual answers to that question, but the way you can look at that to find out which one is legitimate would be to look at the evidence that I keep pointing back to. In each of these encounters, it seems like what he's saying is, well, how can you know which apologist is giving you the right answers? How can you know which culture has the right answers? How can you know? Well, the way you can know is to look at the evidence, make an assessment. Now, of course, as a Christian, I think there's far more involved in that the Holy Spirit can come alongside you and open your eyes to it. Uh, but from your perspective, you can look at the evidence, and I think that's important. Now, let's go on to see what he says about what about a nation that doesn't have uh, this concept of God that Western nations and, and Muslim countries have? But hey, let's put the divide between Christianity and Islam and Christians and Muslims aside. Let's say that monotheism is true. Let's talk about China. What about the guy in China? In China, it doesn't even matter whether you believe in God or not. The question is completely irrelevant. It wouldn't make sense for an average Chinese person to sit here and to explain to the Chinese people why he doesn't believe in God. Because nobody believes in God. People would just sit and be like, why are you telling us this? Most people in China don't believe in God. The question doesn't mean anything to them. 
And this is not an active act of disbelief, of disbelieving. No, the question is unfamiliar to them. The concept of God is unfamiliar to them. They are not discussing whether they do believe or don't believe in God. The question doesn't exist. It's irrelevant. Most people in China will never become Muslims and will never become Christians and will never find the one true God. So why do they exist? How is it conceivable that one religion is true, one God is true, and he expects everybody to seek and find him? That he expects every Chinese person to seek and find this true religion, to find this true God, but most Chinese people never engage in that, so let alone being successful. Okay, so with this one, um, he says in China, the question is irrelevant in China. Well, now it may be ignored, but that's a completely different concept from whether it is irrelevant or should be considered irrelevant. Um, and he may be technically correct that most Chinese people never seek. That may be a technically correct thing, and that is supported by their context. He may not be wrong about that, so he may not be technically wrong in this. But the impression that we're left with by the statement that he gives is that China stands wholly aside from theistic interests. And that admittedly unstated assumption or impression would be completely false. Um, for example... Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, says this on their website. Social scientists have observed the rise of a spiritual vacuum following decades of unprecedented economic growth. Modern China has emerged as a wealthier and more educated society with renewed interest in religion. Consequently, experts say that as the CCP's ideology loses public traction, Christian churches, official and unofficial, appear to be filling some of this void. Believers are not only searching for meaning in their own lives, but also for the future of their country as China adapts to a rapidly changing economy and society. Protestantism appeals to Chinese traditions of ritual and community, according to French Jesuit and China scholar uh, Benoit Vermander. Moreover, experts say Chinese Christians are also attracted to the faith sense of fellowship, comprehensive moral system, organized structure, and solidarity as a part of an international movement. Additionally, um, harsh repression of more popular Chinese uh, religions, especially during the Cultural Revolution, reduced the influence of Buddhism and Taoism and opened the door for greater Christian expansion. Now, that's one thing, but in case you think, well, yeah, but that, that might be, I don't know if we can accept that. Um, let's take a look at what The Economist has to say. Here is a graph from The Economist, and here is a statement in the article that it contains that graph about the growth of Christianity. And it says, Terry, uh, it says, look at the second paragraph there. As for China's Christians, their numbers continue to grow. The government reckons that about 200 million of China's 1.4 billion people are religious. Although most practice traditional Chinese religions such as Taoism and longer standing foreign imports such as Buddhism, Protestant Christianity is probably the fastest growing faith with at least 38 million adherents today, about 3% of the population, up from 22 million a decade ago, according to the government's count. The true number is probably much higher. Perhaps as many as 22 million more uh, Chinese Protestants worship in unregistered underground churches, according to a new study by researchers at the University of Notre Dame. As China also has 10 million to 12 million Catholics, there are more Chinese in China today than in France at 38 million, or Germany, 43 million. Combined, Christians and the country's estimate 23 million Muslims may now outnumber the membership of the Communist Party, 92 million. Indeed, an unknown number of party members go to church as well as local committee meetings. So here's what you need to take away from this. The reality is that it, while, it, while he may not be saying anything technically wrong there, the notion that, that 
China is wholly disinterested in, in theism seems to be untrue, and there is a rapidly growing number of Protestants, a substantial number of, of Christians uh, in general, and if you include Islam in this uh, as, as a theistically interested group of people, it's even bigger than that, and it's, and it's all on the rise. So I just think that that's all important to mention <coughs> when we're considering exactly how... how um, how, uh, how that works out in China. Okay, let's look at uh, the question of salvation and whether it's fair. You could explain that as a Christian, you are expected to do certain things. And as a Muslim, you are expected to worship and do this and that. But both religions believe in the same conclusions. Yes, you may need to do certain things, but regardless, if you believe, then you will eventually go to heaven. You are eventually admitted to the good place, no matter how sinful or how lazy you are because you did believe in the true religion. Even if someone is a terrible person who has a bad temper and who doesn't treat people very well, who deceives and is a wrongdoer, that person is still considered good and goes to heaven because he is a believer. But if I live my life in the best way possible and I'm kind to people and I share, then I still go to the bad place and I'm a bad person because I simply didn't believe in God. Okay, again... He says, because I simply didn't believe in God. No, it's because of sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you've got problems with original sin, as it's understood in terms of Augustinianism, you can understand that we all commit our own sins. All of us commit immoral acts. He says, even if I'm a kind person and I share, I have no doubt that apostate prophet is in general a kind person and a person who shares. He seems to me that from a human perspective to be a very moral and good person. But the question is, has he ever been unkind? Has he ever not shared? Has he ever uh, done anything? thing that we would consider to be sinful, or even outside of Christianity, to be missing the mark and immoral. Um, I think that we all have. And so, uh, so this just goes back to the, the misunderstanding about why we are punished. We're not punished for believing the wrong things. We're punished for our sins. All right, let's uh, move on to the question of free will. God created us and gave us free will. And before he created each and every one of us, he knew exactly in his eternal, perfect wisdom what each one of us would eventually do with that free will. That if he gave me, for example, free will, I would use my free will in the wrong way, take the wrong turn, make the wrong choice, and go to hell. And yet he created me. Yes, he did give me free will, and theoretically it is then my choice. But as said, even before he planned to create me, and before he planned to give me that free will, he knew exactly what I would do with that free will, and that I would eventually go to hell. He created me with that free will. He created my ability to choose. He created my ability to make the wrong choice. He created the punishment, the place of punishment. He created my wrong choice. He created me with that mistake, but he punishes me after I live my flawed life and make that mistake. Some people may want to nitpick some details about this and correct some aspects again. And some Christians may want to explain that evil came into existence because of the fall of humans. While Muslims may want to argue that Allah made an agreement with everybody before he created us. But these objections don't work and they don't matter. Even if humans did fall and corrupt the world with sin, God still created the world, the past and the future. He established and made everything by a plan. It is part of his plan that humans would fall and that sin would come forth. If not, then God made a wrong plan or an unstable plan. God made a mistake in his calculations or God was just experimenting with something and allowed evil to happen in his own creation. 
He could have created something perfect, but he created something flawed, which then went wrong and he decided to punish everyone for that. If this was not all in God's hand, if he didn't know, if this just happened, then God is not all-knowing or almighty. He could have just created humanity beautifully without sin or without eternal punishments for sin. Okay, now the first thing that I want to say is, um, he says, because God knew some would, or he implies that because God knew that some would reject, it's his fault. In, in other words, since he knew this would happen, then somehow even what I do wrong is on him. Um, in fact, he even says, quote, he created my wrong choice, and quote, God created the world, the past and the future. So this, even though I think in general what he's saying doesn't necessarily require determinism, um, as much as just God, even if determinism is not true and we have free will, God knew this would happen and he created me anyway. I mean, that seems to be what he's saying. But that seems deterministic to say he created my wrong choice. He created the world, the past and the future. Well, not directly, through secondary causes. He created the world. But then if he gave man libertarian free will, like, like genuine bona fide, as I understand genuine and bona fide, Calvinists will not agree, free will, uh, then he may have created the world, but your bad choices are on you. Just because God knew you would do something wrong and that you would not be saved doesn't mean that that's God's fault. You may think that it, you may not like it. You may think, uh, I wouldn't have done it that way. But of course, that's just, um, that's just divine psychology. If there was a God, I think he would do it this other way, the way that I would do it. But um, that doesn't necessarily fly. Um, he says it's a part of his plan that humans would fall. Well, now Calvinists might have to say that, but I would say no. I would say it was part of his plan to create free creatures uh, that some would choose to love uh, their neighbor as their self and love the Lord their God. That doesn't mean God made a wrong plan or that he wanted the evil. It's that if, if, if he wants people to freely love him, I'll put it this way. If you have freedom of the, if God wants a people to love him and to love each other, then the way you would do that is, I would say, is to, it, the only way you get genuine love, the highest understanding of love, is to give man free will. But even if you're God, you can't force man to freely always do the right thing. And so man is going to choose to do evil in some situations. But it's an overriding good that you get the love. I think this even makes sense of the tree in the garden. However you understand that story, there's two trees in the midst of the garden. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's the tree of life. Every day, Adam and Eve had to make a choice whether they were going to choose to eat of the tree of life and uh, obey God or eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobey God. They had to choose, am I going to sacrifice? The reason that tree is there is not to set people up for failure. Instead, the reason it's there is to give them an opportunity to demonstrate real love, to forego what they could do for themselves in obedience to God and, and in sacrifice to their relationship with Him. That allows for free will, and that allows for a demonstration of real love. And so because of that, if you're God and you want to create a people of love because that's the greatest thing, that's what God experiences within the Trinity, then the way you do that is you give man free will. That's just how that will work. And that God knew that it would ultimately result in death. That's not on him. That's not his fault. God wanted to create beings of free will, knowing that some would choose against what is best. But then he uh, uh, deepens this just a little bit more, and he anticipates that what people are going to say is that, well, we, we, we don't have an answer to that. We just don't 
We don't have a reason. We don't understand. And no, God does not have some reason which we do not understand. That's only an excuse. And that is the only conclusion that Christians and Muslims can come to in this giant dilemma. To say we simply do not comprehend it. We simply do not understand it. We just have to believe and leave the rest to God because he knows what he's doing. But sorry, that's not an acceptable answer. There is obviously a huge problem, a huge logical flaw here, which cannot be solved. And you cannot simply dismiss that by saying, well, we don't understand it. We should just put it aside and look at other things. Now, he says that the only conclusion that Christians and Muslims can come to, I'm not here to speak on behalf of Muslims, but he says the only reason that Christians and Muslims can come to is just to say, we don't know. It's a mystery. God will figure it out by and by. Don't think about it too much. Are you kidding me? Surely he's aware. He references the free will theodicy. Surely he's aware that we have theodicies and answers. There's the character building theodicy, soul making theodicy, the heaven theodicy, the reformed theodicy. There are all kinds of answers and theodicies and defeaters that are given when atheists bring an argument from evil. There's a rich history of that. So that's not the only answer. That's just simply false. Um, if he thinks it's the only valid answer, he can't mean that because he doesn't think this answer is valid either. So it's like he just doesn't think we have those other answers. But we do have those other answers, and we should assess those one by one, and we've done that on this channel. Um, but let's just say that was the answer, because some Christians do say, we just don't understand why he, does, uh, he allows these evil things to happen. And he says, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Well, let, what if we applied that to other things? What if we came to the seemingly uh, contradictory and incredibly mysterious results of quantum mechanics? We just said, no, I'm sorry, that, that's not good enough. We can't, and someone says, well, I don't understand how quantum mechanics work. It, it's, it's something that seems mysterious. No, uh, that doesn't work. Would you just say, therefore, quantum mechanics isn't a thing? It just, it isn't real? No, of course not. It's, it may legitimately be the answer that, God, that the God of the universe does some things we don't understand. But that's not the answer I give to why there's evil in the world. But if it was the answer someone gave, I think that's a legitimate answer. It's, it's, it's humility. It's saying, I don't know the answer to this. But I still have other good reasons to believe that God exists. I don't have the answer to this one. But you don't throw things out when you just don't understand how they work. In the end, he's asked, couldn't God have just created beautifully mankind, but without the pain and suffering and evil? Not if you wanted to get the highest expression of, of the beauty of mankind, which is love, the highest good. You can't do that if you want real love without free will. And I think that answers what he's saying. Now, it doesn't mean that it's satisfying in the sense that it's still going to bother us whenever we experience pain and suffering. And there's an emotional problem there that apologists can't answer, but it's not as though we don't have good answers. And then he nuances it further with this illustration that apologists sometimes give of father and son. Some people attempt to compare this to a father and a son, and a father wants to help his son. And because the father knows best what's for the son, the father offers the son to go through some things that the son doesn't like, like going to the doctor or going to the dentist or abiding by certain rules which the son doesn't like. But the father prepares him for a world and those rules are necessary for that son. But that comparison is inaccurate. It's a false comparison. The father makes those rules and takes his son to the, de to the dentist and takes him to the doctor, creates restrictions which the son doesn't like because the father and the son are both beings, humans that exist in this world which has conditions which the father is aware of and his power is limited and he tries to prepare his son. That's not an accurate comparison to God and us. 
if the father of that son could change all the conditions and could change the world and could make it possible for the son to never experience any suffering but to still live a wonderful, great life, then the father would probably do that. But the father is a powerless figure in a world where norms and rules exist that are out of his hand and he is only trying his best to help his son. Whereas God is supposed to be the creator of all conditions, of everything that exists. This seems to be wrong on the face of it if you're aware at all of what we call character building answers. There are things, there are goods that come from experiencing some level of suffering that are not accessible uh, without those uh, elements of suffering. And so I, I, I don't think that that actually does uh, answer the question. And here's a deeper, let, let's actually make this answer a bit more on the nose. There is um, a new show uh, that, that uh, is, is on with Brian Cranston, and it's called Your Honor. And uh, the sh my understanding of the show is that uh, Brian Cranston's character is a judge, and he's a really great judge. Always, you know, he's really good at this. He's really fair and all these kind of things. But his son ends up, uh, in, a, in a somewhat understandable way, in an automobile accident that kills a, another young man. And uh, he drives off. But the guy who dies is, um, is uh, the son of a big mob boss. So while Cranston is originally going to take his son to the police and try to explain everything, and, and, and there seems to be a, a somewhat of an explanation there, um, he notices that it's this, this mob boss or whatever uh, is, is the guy whose son was killed. And so as a result, the show, I understand the premise of the show to be that Brian Cranston, because he's the father of this kid and loves him so much, even though he's uh, supposed to be a just judge, he does the unjust thing and tries to prevent his son from ever experiencing the uh, justice system uh, as it should play out with respect to what he did because he loves his son and he wants to take care of his son. Now, this, is a, an, uh, this idea of a father who is also a just judge seems to be a more of an accurate reflection of what's actually going on. Why does the just judge allow for people to experience, uh, allow for a world with pain and suffering in it? Uh, it could be because it develops our moral character and integrity, and it's also because he wanted us to have free will and free will results in these things. Well, what should the just judge do when uh, one of his sons, in this sense we mean his sons in the Acts 17 sense, just someone who is uh, a human being that God created, what should he do? Well, if you say he should function like Brian Cranston and remove the son from experiencing any of the negative ramifications of his own sin, the suffering that would result there, then what you're saying is that he should not be just. Now, in the case of Brian Cranston's character, we understand why he doesn't want to be just. It's because of the love he has for his son. And of course, God the Father does have love for us. However, uh, Brian Cranston's love leads to his injustice. And as a result, what, what we should see is, no, God is actually maximally loving, far more loving than Brian Cranston's character on the show could ever be. But he is also just, uh, maximally just, the greatest expression of justice. So what does a just judge do? A just judge says, no, my son, in, not in the salvific sense, but in the sense that it's a creature that I created, must experience justice. However, I'm going to exercise maximal love and offer a way to avoid that um, penalty. And that's what we see God doing. And I think that makes great sense out of this situation. Let's go on to the next clip where we uh, hear what he has to say about God. He moves away from some of the problem of evil and goes on to God 
what, the nature of God. If we forget about evil and morality and heaven and hell and all of that for a second, isn't the whole creation and the nature of God kind of strange? We are told that in the beginning there was only God and there was nothing else. And he decided to create us. This kind of implies that God always did exist, but at some point he decided to create us. It looks like God had no story, no significance, no importance at all without us. God's journey began with us. Does it make sense that there was nothing but only God for eternity or pre-eternity and then God suddenly decided to create us and that's where God's story began? Did God just exist there before us? How long in eternity did it take for God to come to that conclusion? Does that question even make sense? Why did he feel the need to make such a decision? Why did he feel? Does God feel? Why? Is God a social God, or did he just create his feelings, his own desires, his own thoughts, and his own language as part of this game which he also created in order to create us? I don't want to immerse too much into this, but it feels a little bit arrogant and even a bit cruel of us humans to assume that this God, who is eternal, created us, and we are what give this God importance. We give him meaning because on his own he's quite meaningless, isn't he? It's almost like God depends on us rather than we on him. Okay, um, so how long did God exist before creating? He has a problem with that, as if God was just sitting around twiddling his fingers. Um, this is so deadly close to the common joke that I have to say it. Um, perhaps he was creating hell for people that ask questions like that. Now, obviously, I'm kidding. The, the desire to understand is a great thing. Uh, but um, uh, how long did God exist before creating? This is a misunderstanding of how uh, we understand, classical theists understand the nature of, of God. It's God created space, time, and physical matter. Um, the Kalam cosmological argument, which uh, was worked on by Muslim scholars, actually gets you, uh, well, the, the um, conceptual analysis that follows the Kalam gets you to this notion that God exists timelessly. So there, it's not as though God was sitting around waiting to do something, because sitting around and waiting implies time. How long did God exist before creating implies a passing of time. God exists changelessly, timelessly, um, Trinitarianly, and God created. And so there has never been a time when, when God did not exist or when God was bored, because so long as there's been time, uh, God, that's a part of the physical universe, and God's been active in the physical universe. So I think that answers that. If you want more on that, just type um, Cosmological or Kalam and Braxton Hunter or Trinity Radio. We have a short video on the Kalam Cosmological Argument in the short videos playlist. That goes into all that in more detail. Um, is God a social God? Does God feel? I think so. Is God a social God? This is the wonderful thing about the Trinity. There was a nature of love that timelessly and changelessly existed among the members of the Trinity um, in eternity. Uh, by eternity, I don't mean a long, long time. I mean timelessly. Um, and uh, doesn't it seem like God needs us? I don't see how. The experience of love within the Trinity was, uh, it was a good that that be experienced by more creatures, and so God created. I, I don't understand this notion that God needed us. In fact, the Bible anticipates this sort of an objection and says in Acts 17, uh, verses 24 and 25, as Paul is at the Areopagus uh, talking to philosophically trained Greeks, it's, he says, the God who made the world and everything that is in it 
since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. All right, so let's move on to the next clip. And uh, in this next clip, he talks about God, uh, how it took so long to get um, human life on earth. In a world where we now understand that only this planet existed for nearly 4 billion years, whereas our universe is thought to have existed for 14 billion years almost, and so many species existed, and there is a vast universe with myriads of planets which possibly harbor life, maybe even intelligent life. How could I believe that all of this for 14 billion years was just God creating us on this random planet? after 14 billion years of nothingness, by the way, just so we would have a history of a few thousand years. Go through this game and believe in him. Okay, um, whoops, there we go. Um, so, I, first of all, I gotta say, Apostate Prophet, if you see this, uh, I think I like you as an individual, but so don't take this as an insult, but I don't really see the problem here. I mean, what's the syllogism? What are we saying? What was the, what's the argument here? I think what he would say is, if I'm trying to steel man this, is if I imagine oh, if I imagine it being the case that there is no God, then it seems to make more sense that it took as long as it did for the Earth to form and then for human life, you know, uh, uh, you know, higher intelligence to emerge. But if I take the view that God exists, it doesn't make sense why it would take so long. But there are a lot of things that don't, you know, he's talking about all these billions of years, and then there's a few thousand years where there's mankind. Um, well, there's a lot of things that, 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 don't, that take a long time before they're prepared, and then they don't last very long in, in scope of, of the effort, uh, but the thing was still done for that small period of time. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, take a rock concert, for example. The rock band U2 is known for their massive stage designs or their incredibly intricate and uh, technologically advanced stage designs. When they did the 2017 um, Joshua Tree Tour, which was a, a revamp of their 1989, 88, something like that, Joshua Tree Tour, um, they, they, they had a massive... 8K maybe screen that went the entire side of a stadium. It was massive. It, it took forever. All these semi-trucks came in. It took forever to get that thing put up. You've got one or two nights, and then it takes forever to take the whole thing back down and go on to the next destination. So each of those concerts lasted about two hours. So you've got about four hours total of time that that thing is in use, but it took way, dozens of hours to put that thing together. Days, in fact, okay? So the idea that it takes a long time, and then there's a short amount of time where something important that we're planning for happens, and then a long time for it to, to rattle off or whatever isn't a, isn't a problem, especially when you consider Christian eschatology, where there's not going to come an end to human existence. Um, now, you might say, okay, but yeah, that's, but that's a human effort putting together a rock show on that scale. So um, that doesn't really reflect this, because God could have all done it instantly. God could have all done it instantly. God could have taken as long as he wanted. What's that amount of time to God? Um, per, and then here's another thing. Perhaps he allowed all that time to give us more events in the past for us to study and research, because most of us believe that we want a God, we believe in a God who created a rational cosmos so that we can investigate it rationally. This is the sort of thing that led to the scientific revolution by Christians who wanted to investigate the world that God made. So I think all of those things are important to mention. Now, 
Let's look at the last clip, and this will be the last clip that we look at. And if there's something that you mentioned in this list that I didn't get to, I'm sorry about that, Apostate Prophet. I tried to get to everything, but I, I'm sure I missed some minor things. I, I didn't mean to. I didn't intentionally leave anything out. But what about miracles? Nothing in history has ever turned out to be of a supernatural, magical origin. No miracle has ever turned out to be a miracle. Nothing has ever turned out to verify these mythological, magical, religious claims that people have made. And miracles seem to have mysteriously stopped since the invention of cameras and of mass media and the internet. <coughs> Excuse me. So I, I reject this one just on the face of it. I do not think it's the case that supernatural and miraculous events have stopped. And I, I understand, but let me say, I understand completely where the question comes from. You look in the Bible and there's miraculous stuff happening all over the place. At least it seems that way. Um, and it seems like if they're happening all over the place now, shouldn't we have all this evidence of it? Well, okay, so a couple of things here. First of all, the idea that miraculous events are happening all over in the Bible. Understand that the Bible spans uh, thousands of years of human history, and we really have, well, you can find miraculous and supernatural things happening throughout. There are really three periods where they're happening at a, a pretty regular interval, and that is the period of Moses and Joshua and those sorts of things that happened there. Uh, the period where we have uh, Elijah and Elisha and their ministry of miracles. And then we have the period of Jesus and the apostles. So when you put it all into one book in one volume, it looks like things are happening left, right, and center. Um, and, and they are happening, uh, but I don't think it, it's so discontinued from what we experience today. And that begs the question, are, or raises the question, are things like that happening today? I think that they are. I think we have some evidence, even caught on technology, that it's happening today. I did a video um, last year sometime on miracles, um, and uh, in Lee Strobel's book on miracles, uh, he lists out some things. Uh, Craig Keener has a book on miracles that everyone in this realm has looked at called Miracles. Uh, but then also, I actually put in this video a couple of examples, and in one case, the actual uh, evidence caught on audio of a man who had lost his voice completely. He could only kind of talk like this. And that man who had been to a symposium of the leading uh, people dealing with this uh, in the world and said he's likely to never speak again. And then uh, after years of dealing with this, when he's in a context, a religiously informed context, talking about God's ability to heal in a miraculous way, it happens. And it is just blow your mind. So I, I don't take this. Um, and then I cover another case in there too. Uh, I think the title of this video is Two Highly Evidential Miracle Claims or something like that. You can find that on our channel. So I just don't buy it that these things don't happen today. I'm sorry. And if you want to run an experiment, and admittedly this will be anecdotal, but it should count for something. Go into any group, like don't go to an atheist group, but any group that is not an atheist group. It doesn't have to be a religious organization. But any group that is not an atheist conference or something and ask them if they have had experiences with individuals in their family or their friends or they themselves uh, of some miraculous healing that they think that there are reasons to believe it was miraculous. Um, and not just that the doctors didn't understand it, but, but there's other reasons to believe it was miraculous. Would you please raise your hand? You will have probably 50% of the crowd. There's been times where I haven't had, because I've done this. There have been times where it wasn't 50% of the crowd, but it's, it's a big number. And so um, 
I get that that's anecdotal, but I'm just telling you, I just don't buy this claim. I get where it comes from, but I just don't buy it. And so with that, we're going to come to the end of this, uh, this jaunt through this video from the apostate prophet. I appreciate that he's seemingly being very sincere and genuine about all this. Um, I appreciate the work he does in responding to Islam. But uh, that brings us to the end of this discussion. And listen, if you've enjoyed this, um, you see this great hoodie, you can get that um, at our Teespring site, uh, Trinity Radio on Teespring. And also, if you enjoy what we're doing, subscribe to the channel. It, it doesn't cost you a dime. And if you really, really appreciate what we're doing, you can partner with us and help us out at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio or click in the right top right-hand corner of this video screen or click in the description. We've got a link there. And... Uh, when you do that, you actually get uh, five full seminary-level courses with PowerPoint, a lot of episodes that we've never released, um, other stuff, uh, books. There's a bunch of books that would cost you over $100 to buy individually. You get them free as eBooks when you uh, join us on Patreon. So I hope that you'll do that. And uh, with that, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Mm -hmm.